Hey everybody, this is Charles Hain. I'm here for the No Film School podcast for the week of December 24th, 2020. This is the last episode of 2020 for the No Film School podcast. I'm Charles Hain, writer for No Film School. I'm here with uh, George Edelman, editor-in-chief. Hello. We're going to be talking about Tom Cruise's COVID protocol rant. We're going to be talking about surprising twists and turns in The Mandalorian. We're going to be talking about in tech news, some firmware upgrades that are actually kind of wonderful. We're going to be talking about all that and an Ask No Film School this week on the final week of the No Film School podcast. All right, our top story this week is actually news from last week, but it's so juicy we had to talk about it. Tom Cruise in leaked audio. I don't know if it's berating, yelling, <laughs> abusing. It's 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 a hard line to draw. But basically, Tom Cruise is very upset with the production. He's working on Mission Impossible 7, I believe, and some crew oh members God. not following COVID protocols. I'm going to go ahead and do a hot take and say... Some other people now have this theory as well, but I'm going to I'm gonna lay it out there. From the first time I heard it, it sounded fake and deliberate to me. It sounded like this is something, there's a, it's, it's repetitive and it's repetitive in a way that people aren't naturally and that good writers aren't when they write a scene, but that people who don't <laughs> do a lot of improv are repetitive when they improv. And it felt like that to me. Like there's a way in which he's repeating phrases where I'm like, no, 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 real people vary their phrasing more than that when they're just having an explosion. And so it felt to me like Tom wanted to show the world how seriously he was taking COVID protocols. I could be wrong, but that is how it felt. And that was my first instinct. It's also such a weird year that everything seems fake. I think you're onto something. Whether or not it was scripted or partially scripted or at least performed, I think Tom Cruise, I don't know the man, and I probably never will, but I think Tom Cruise might not have a side of him that isn't somewhat performative. And I, when I heard it, my initial thought was, okay, yeah, this is probably a good thing. You know, we have this controversy about mask wearing. We have a lot of people refusing to do it. This is a safety issue. But the longer it went and the more it became repetitive, the more I started to think, okay, this is like sick. Like this is not the way you're supposed to talk to people. I hate this side of Hollywood. I hate that movie stars feel they can treat people this way. It's fine to say it once. And then I started to think even more about it. And I started thinking, there's just something so off about this guy to me. Like there's something so, I mean, obviously like Scientology is, um, I don't want to comment on other people's faith, but there's an aspect that has been revealed of Scientology that's abusive and taking advantage of people. And he's one of the beneficiaries. And I just wonder what planet this guy's even on sometimes. Like, I don't know anything about what his human experience is like. I can't imagine it. The people, the, there are people at the Church of Scientology whose like job it is, is to like, buff his motorcycles and stuff like i don't know what his existence looks like and i can't imagine everything is like he's the nicest guy he's the consummate professional and and i'm sure a lot of that is true but the rant just felt like another chapter in the in the book of tom cruise crazy that i think 
uh, I'm just going to say it like I just think is is long and will be revealed more over time. And the guys, he's he's out there. And I don't my basic takeaway was like and I said this editorially, the way we approached it on the website, no film school was we would cover it and we would cover, you know, the side of it. That's it's good for COVID safety. A lot of the people in the industry I know on various levels were excited about it and happy he did it. But I feel like it's just not the right way to talk to people. I don't think it's the culture we want on sets. And I think that it's important we mention that too. So those were my takes. But I think you're on to something big time. Because I agree that there is something so rehearsed or partially rehearsed about it. And it feels so weird. But then again, I think that could be just him. What do you think? I think Scientology is a cult and is terrible and is awful to people. I tend to think of him more as likely a victim of the cult than a perpetrator. My suspicion is that the evil cult that is Scientology, and like I feel comfortable saying it's a crazy evil cult, like it's terrible, uh, is probably... <laughs> yes, well. <laughs> yeah, like, but like I think it's probably worked really hard to hide all of that from him and like, you yes. know... Uh, and that like, seems to be the case. Yes. Yes. So he like, could be blackmailed. There could be all kinds of stuff. There's, there's so much. We we know probably the tip of the iceberg even still about what's going on there. Yeah. So he but could like, be a victim. I agree. Yeah. So I've never known. Like I've never held Scientology against him, I, and I don't even know that I'm holding. Like if this is all fake and some sort of weird, you know, um, uh, Joaquin Phoenix style prank. I don't hold it against him. Like it's not, but it did seem demonstrative to me in some way. It is also possible that he was doing that thing that people sometimes do where they are deliberately demon. Like the anger didn't yeah. seem genuine. He could have yeah. been deliberately using anger as a tool out of the hope that it would have an effect. The other thing I yeah, thought was... I, the what is genuine is, about him, though? That's the thing that I'm getting at is like, maybe there is a genuine side, but I don't know what it is because I've only ever seen the man as a performer. So I wonder, like, is it just the way he always is? Is he kind of always on like that? But I agree with you. If it Here's, here's what I'll say. If it was a, a, a performance intended to send a message to the world i like it a lot more than if it was actually the way he was treating someone genuinely in the moment but it's also one of those things if we like i don't think you should ever get to that level of anger with coworkers. like i just don't think that's appropriate in any work environment and i think that yes we need to stop putting up with that in film the way we need to stop putting it up in any like workplace like that's not how people should treat each other in a work environment like that's just never appropriate yeah. however I was also wondering, like, how many steps of escalation it had to take to get there. Like, if this yeah. had been going on for weeks and people had always... But on the flip side, I find it just very hard to imagine, like, every professional that I know who is working right now is obsessed with taking this seriously. I don't know a single person who is working on sets right now where they are not super conscious of how often they're getting tested and what the stakes are and how many people are trying to be safe. And, and, every, and so it's just like, who are the yeah. five people on the... Mission Impossible set who are like, you know what? We're fine. We don't have to wear masks. I'm like, <laughs> what? Like, how is that like a thing? Because that's not something like that I am seeing in any professional environment whatsoever right now. It's certainly something I'm hearing about at like shopping malls where people are uh, yeah. freaking out. When being, but like, it's, it's just everybody is so grateful to have work and so happy to be back at work. Everybody I know who is in a, on a show right now is – 
taking it incredibly seriously. It's just a weird, it's a weird thing. I'm with you. I agree. There's a lot of question marks on it, but it's, it's, it's troubling to me that so many people I know around the industry just kind of were like, yeah, that's, that's how people talk to each other. That's, you know, you get dressed down in, in, a, in a, any industry, but so much of Hollywood, it's acceptable. In a corporate structure, it's less so. And you can honestly get in a lot of trouble for being like abusive, angry, demonstrative in that way. You can um, cross lines. You can lose like HR would come down on people in certain. I think we have to ask that the community of filmmaking understand that a the stakes are never that high. You don't need to treat people like that. There's no reason to. Yelling, to me, anger, displays of anger and frustration, to me, always indicates a loss of control. It doesn't indicate strength. It indicates chaos or weakness. And I, whenever I see it happen, and whenever you see it on set, you always feel like it's somebody who's trying to show everyone or show themselves that they have power. But it always feels like this kind of desperate clawing to me. Um, besides for the fact that it alienates team members, it changes the dynamic. And the funniest response I heard to the cruise rant was a friend of mine who has been an assistant before many times to people. And he mentioned being an assistant to a famous person and how he was like, oh, it reminded me so much of the one time I brought a salad to ex-celebrity when I was his assistant and he yelled at me in exactly the same way because it was not, it was too similar to the salad he'd gotten recently and he wanted things to be varied more, which sounds so ridiculous, but that's the kind of thing that happens. That's like a common way of treating people in the entertainment industry, whether it's about a real thing or it's about something as silly as a salad. And I just think it needs to stop. I mean, I, so what's interesting, I mean, you mentioned HR. One of the biggest problems in the film industry is that there's often no HR you can go to. Now, let's always remember HR is there to protect the company, not the employee. Uh, they're just protecting the company from lawsuits by looking out for yeah. the employee. But, you know, everyone I know who's someone's assistant is just hired by that person, right? Like there's no big Hollywood right. assistant <laughs> company that's sending out those assistants. You just work for that person. That person doesn't have an HR department. That person doesn't have... So, you know, all of my friends who are personal assistants tell these stories about being treated like, honestly, like, yes, we should be condemning how angry he was at the crew. That wasn't by like that leaked audio of Tom Cruise was not by any means the worst thing I've heard. Any like, no, like, not even oh, my close. God, like people are much worse than that on set all the time. And it's awful. And it's because there's usually not an HR department on set. There's usually no structures in place. And there's this delusion. Just the that, whole like, attitude is you're lucky to be here. Everybody yeah. wants your job. Like you're lucky that I'm giving you this opportunity and you'll take it, you know. Well, and there's this delusion that these high end that the high operators are 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 so special that they're able to treat people like this because and I think this happens in corporate environments too where certain powerful CEOs probably treat people awfully, but like, you know, uh the big A-list talent can do this because they're the ones who bring butts and seats. And I wonder if this happens less often on Disney and Star Wars movies because the property is the celebrity there, <laughs> not any of the personalities. So It's I wonder, an interesting question. I will just say my favorite story of an assistant, and this was someone 
uh, a good friend of mine was an assistant to a writer who was like awful and called him like 50 times a day and was verbally abusive and all that stuff. And one time my buddy missed a call because he was in the shower and the next day got a waterproof pager from the dude he was assisting <laughs> because even being in the shower was not a good reason to miss a call when he was needed. Um, assistant, I, I think assistant cultures is toxic to begin with because I think we should, first of all, so many times, one of the first things that I was offered, I was an intern at a production company. I did a lot of early non-paying things, but one of the first things was writer director who needed a personal assistant. And when they outlined what it was going to be, I just looked at it and I was like, no way. Like, <laughs> like, I mean, maybe I'm prideful, maybe I'm arrogant. I certainly was then, but I was like, no, I'm not picking up your laundry and doing your errands. Like you're an adult, like <laughs> you can do that shit yourself. I think the idea that we have assistant culture and I know people are busy and I know that, you know, we all have things we want to kick downhill. And, but to me, it, the whole thing is like, when I produced indie movies, my attitude was like, there's nothing I won't have a PA do that I won't do. Like a PA was on my indie features, PA had to take the trash at the end of the day. And I went with them. I took the trash too, because I was like, I'm not like, that's, I'm not above that. And you're not below me as a human being. And I just find that the culture of that in Hollywood, the echelons, the tears, it, it disgusts me. And I, I mean, not to rant, but the Tom Cruise thing really triggered me in that way to use another, I've said toxic and trigger this kind of modern language about these things. I don't like bullies. I don't like people abusing power. I respect people in power who do the opposite. I don't respect people in power who use it to berate people or belittle them. And I think that's, uh, I just think that's a pathetic way to behave and I don't respect it. So when I, to me, the thing about on set, like the big fish gets to get away with anything and do less and only has time for the... It's just uh, no, I don't. I don't think any TV show or movie, as much as I love the creative endeavors, earns anybody the right. Like, hey, you're playing make believe. Come on, you know, <laughs> like it's not that important. You're not curing cancer. But I always go back to the Peter Jackson example, the famous Peter Peter Jackson and how he likes his tea example, where um, I do think it is possible to be legitimately so busy. That you need someone else to do things for you because, the, you know, when you're directing the Lord of the Rings movies, there's so much on your plate. So many decisions have to be made at any given time that, like, someone else making your tea is, like, a totally reasonable, acceptable thing to, like, let you focus on your time. But the famous example about Peter Jackson is um, the person who made his tea, he had a very particular tea order, um, like, did it for the first two movies and then the beginning of the third movie or something. I don't remember the exact details. He had to replace himself for a month to go away. And the person who made the tea for a month just made it not knowing the order. And Peter Jackson just drank it for a month and never said anything because he was too polite to be like, oh, you're getting my tea wrong. And so like maybe he should have spoken up after week two and been like, oh, I actually like it like this. But like you can – other people can do nice things for you or can do their job and you can be polite and not a dick about it. Like yeah, it's entirely that's a great possible. story. That's a great story because I, I've i never had a person who made me drinks like as their job. I can't imagine being so busy that I can't, but, I, but I'm sure it's possible. Um, but I've certainly worked in enough environments like film sets or no film school where there's people who are working for me and doing things that I'm assigning. 
because I'm busy doing other things. It's part of life. It's part of any structure. But yeah, if you get it and it's wrong, there's a number of ways you can react when something is wrong. I think how you handle yourself, I think taking a moment and considering what you're going to say or do, it dictates the response. It changes the culture. And it says more than anything else, it says a lot about you. And I think we all ultimately have to consider beyond the projects or the work we're doing, who we are as people. And, you know, whether or not Tom Cruise, I've always thought in some of these rants, they're taken out of context. People lose their temper. You're on a set. We've all had moments. I, I lose my temper with my kids all the time. I'm not a saint. You know, like, I mean, everybody yeah. has those moments, but like, I think with, with coworkers, with employers, with employees, like we all, we all get angry. Like it's human. I just am surprised when people at that high level who are that visible don't consider more carefully, like every single thing I do is a reflection of my brand and my, you know, and, and I'm the leader of this team. And if I lose my cool, what does that say? Like, I don't know, like, Think about the mythology around someone like George Washington. I don't know how how accurate it all is, but like from what we know, like leading by by being even tempered, cool under fire, like presenting people with something to hang their hopes on and to rely on seems to me like I don't know how Hollywood became a place where it's like the most volatile genius is the best kind. Do you know what I'm saying? That's why I'm saying that some of it feels performative. I think I've seen people yeah. be, throw a temper tantrum. I'm not saying Tom Cruise did this, but I've definitely seen people throw a temper tantrum. And I'm like, oh, you're throwing a temper tantrum to prove you can. You're not actually that mad. But you want right, everyone right. to know you can be this mad because you have yeah. this like idea of what like <laughs> right. masculinity and power means. And you want to perform <laughs> that to demonstrate to everyone that you are capable of having this. And like, yes, why is that part of the – I'm like one of the first shows I ever had a small job on, one of the guys who who is now a bigger shot but was not a big shot, but there were like notes from the studio and the reaction was so big. I was like, wow, it just seems so like so extra. Like it, it doesn't need to be like that. And I wondered to what extent it was like trying to live the dream of being the 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 belabored creative who had notes from the studio, you know? Well, I think, honestly, I think every industry was like this for a long, long time. And then other industries slowly cre cleaned up their act. Film didn't because of weird structures about film, the number of people who want jobs versus the number of jobs available, right. the freelance nature of the industry. And then people started to see that film hadn't cleaned up an act. And so, you know, like the same people who ended up in piracy 300 years ago, people started to drift to the film industry because it was a place where bad behavior was not punished. <laughs> yes, that's well put. And we're seeing a lot of that happen where it's like people say like, why are there so many in this, in the me too waves, like so many of these creeps like high up in entertainment. And I wonder to what extent, because there's an acceptable amount of really criminal behavior that's tolerated, abusive behavior, be, because there's an acceptable amount, maybe a lot of people gravitated towards it because they're like, oh, this feels safe to me. Well, or also you have to remember a lot of people bounce around to a lot of different places before they find the place where they can be safe to get away with their bullshit. So, you know, it's like uh, I have a friend who was dating a sociopath and, and they were a little bit like, well, how did the sociopath know that they could take advantage of me? And I was like, well, they... They walk around trying to take advantage of anyone 
And then they just stop when they find someone who puts up with it. And so like, you know, if you're a particular kind of toxic monster, you're going to bounce around and try a bunch of industries. And if the industry quickly is like, no, 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 wait a minute, we don't let you act like that. You're going to move on to a new one. And then the film industry is just not an industry that traditionally until two or three years ago would ever be like, no, 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 don't act like that. And only (laughs) now is the film industry starting to draw some boundaries around behavior which is like yes. a healthy thing the film industry should have started to do 150 years ago. Right, but you're making a really good point in terms of the history of it and the fact, and you're answering the question I've been posing, which is like, why? Why? Why does it continue to happen? Um, why are agencies like this? Like, why do agents treat their assistants? Like, you man a desk in an agency, you are in for it. Like, and, and that's Which is the crazy because they're big companies with HR departments, so they should know better. Yeah, well, go figure. But you're right. It's part of it is that you 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 hear and there's a romantic side to the like the pirates thing, the band of people who don't fit in the structure of the rest of the world, so this is what we do. And that seems very cool, but there's a side of it which is like, well, why don't you fit in the rest? It's not just cuz you're so creative. It's not, it, there's things about that structure. There's things about that accountability that maybe don't feel so right. And what does that say? And as the more you dig, the more you look at that, the more you think, oh, it might be that like you're unwilling to listen or you're unwilling to behave by certain standards and rules or wake up at a certain time consistently five days a week or whatever it is. Like there's no, I'm not saying that's always the case, but it's interesting, right? Speaking of the industries we love, at least Charles and I and however many other millions around the world, let's talk about Star Wars. So Star Wars is alive and well, as we know, through Disney. It has millions of television shows coming to us in the next many years. The one that's launched the streaming service Disney Plus just ended season two, and it had quite a finale. There will be spoilers, I guess, because that's part of what we have to talk about. I feel like The Mandalorian has consistently been a show that is pushing boundaries in terms of tech and in terms of what you can do with the medium. I I am, to me, Stagecraft, and we've talked about the Mandatorium. Is that what we were calling it? The Mandatanium. Mandatanium. Uh, It's Stagecraft and the Mandatanium idea are wizardry to me. They are industrial light and magic to me. I've said it before, but it's like, I watch it sometimes. I saw a meme. I wonder if we reposted this meme on No Film School. If we didn't, we should have. But I saw one that said it was the pie chart and it was watching Mandalorian for the story was a little sliver and the rest of it was just watching Mandalorian to try and see the seams on the LED sets. I am so blown away by how good it looks by how immersive it is, by how much I can't tell what's real and what's what's real, real, quote unquote. I I find the show fascinating from that standpoint. But let's just talk about the story too. The season, the second season, it's a formulaic plot, but the second season did a great job, I think. I think it upped what they were doing in the first season. I think Dave Filoni and Jean Favreau have done an excellent job threading a needle of fan service and you know, bringing new people into the fold. I can't tell you how many people I know who know every little nuance of what all of this is happening because they watch the cartoons that Filoni executive produced. 
as well as people like my wife who are totally into this and have no can't even remember always where it takes place in the Star Wars universe timeline. They're like, wait, does this happen after X or before Y? So yes, there was a big reveal at the end of the season. I'm shocked they went there. They brought back a character from the original trilogy. They de-aged slash face swapped slash deep faked Luke Skywalker in his prime. It was a phenomenal reveal, I thought. It was done, you know, you could see the seams, I'll be honest. Like that wasn't one of their most flawless effects, but that's a tough one to do. I thought it paid off. Everybody I know uh, in the internet community, but also just personally thought it paid off. I was amazed that they had the balls to do it, frankly. Um, And I wanted to talk about it because... Uh, there's just so much there. I think that it's so much about what's going to happen with IP, with performances, with characters that you know and love from another era. Um, I'm curious your thoughts. First off, haven't seen the episode yet. Have a two-year-old. There is a pandemic a little bit behind on our content consumption. However, I did read up on the episode knowing we were going to be talking about it, and I had no choice but to read up on the episode because all of the meme pages I follow of a 24-hour spoiler rule. And in fact, I saw a meme specifically about the 24-hour spoiler rule and this reveal. And I forget exactly how it goes, but it's like a photo of Luke in the episode. And it's like, we waited 24 hours. You know, we waited a certain number of years. We also waited 24 hours on spoilers. Shut the fuck up. So it was like, you know, this is a thing that like culturally... I'm not deep in the Star Wars fandom. It crossed over quite a bit. What's interesting to me about this is one of the things, and this goes back to like as filmmakers and and thinking about writing and creating content. um, One of the things that I liked that I have enjoyed most about the Mandalorian is that it has not tried to lace itself too closely to the main nine movie series. It's not a trilogy anymore, The, the trilogy of trilogies, the trilogy cubed, whatever we call that thing. Um, the main universe. The reason why I like that is one of, there's quite a few faults in the prequels, although I, I do respect their ambition. But one of the problems with the prequels is what was fun about that central trilogy, four, five, and six, is they were always hinting at this huge other mythology that like yes. made the world feel very real. They mentioned the Clone Wars. They mentioned all these other things. And you were like, what is that? I'm curious. There's none of that in the, in the prequels. It's all yes. spelling out what those things are showing yeah. you the clone wars and then like there's no like hint that like before that there was a yeah. rock war or any, you know it was just it, it became very closed and there's the universe a, t- a lot smaller that's yes. for sure there's an instinct that all creators have to to tie things up in a neat bow and there's a struggle everyone has when they're telling a story and this is the, the same as true telling a joke in a bar or writing a big uh, movie franchise is like how tight a bow do i tie it in so it feels organized but still messy like life so one of the things i liked about the mandalorian the um was that it was like okay we're gonna let ourselves just be in the universe near the universe obviously baby yoda is very close to the universe but like you know um taking these characters expanding in other tales and it felt like they struck a really good balance of connecting but not connecting so closely that it felt fake Like, Mm -hmm. you know, the prequels are like plaid. The pattern is so tight in the prequels that there's no room. And like plaid's wonderful, but you're not going to wear plaid every day. A plaid tuxedo is the prequels. (laughs) And the Mandalorian, you know, is like a worn plaid poncho where you can still see the pattern, but it's been weathered. Uh, Yeah. 
I, I stuck that landing. I got to say for myself, I'm really yeah. proud of where that went. And I didn't know it was going there when I started off. So I was nervous about the, when I first heard this spoiler, cause I was like, Oh, they're really going to tie it yeah. that tight. They're really going to yeah. like wrap it up in that bow. But apparently I've yet to watch the episode, but apparently the entirety of the internet agrees it worked. And like the entirety yeah, I- of the internet never agrees on anything. I know it's weird. We'll talk about this from two ways. There's the creative way. There's the fan way. And with Star Wars, the things are linked because Star Wars inspired, you know, generations of creators because of its possibility. Because of the way it was built initially, that those first three movies, they created this idea of like, you can make up something crazy and weird that feels like a lot of stuff you love, but is also yours. And it can hint at all kinds of creative possibilities. And everybody, the little kid and everyone was inspired to think and create and imagine. And that's the beauty of it or of things like Disney. The thing that that started to happen, the prequels, your plot analogy is beautiful. If they're plaid, I feel like the sequel movies were like solid color. Like there's no, there's just nothing. It's just all recycled. It's all retreading. I don't know how else to describe it. It was, it was a vacuum sort of. And there was an initial blush of joy from people because they loved seeing it all again, but, but it faded fast and expectations were high. And, you know, the last movie was a bit of a wreck. But I think that, What Mandalorian did well is exactly what you described. I think that they have connected it in a way. The reason I think it works and it ties into the idea of the filmmaker, the creative, is they've connected it in a way that leaves a lot open and asks a lot of other questions, which is like, well, wait, this certainly doesn't fit with with everything we knew before. This actually implies that other things continued to happen that maybe don't connect or maybe it they make where the prequels made the universe feel small, this makes the universe feel a little bit bigger because, well, where did they go off and do? What is Luke doing now? Where did, are we going to see him again? Are we not? And and how does that work? And I think that they've done a nice job towing the line between the things you know that are familiar and giving you fan service, which is obviously a huge part of their marketing plan, and giving you new stuff um, to to fall in love with, like Baby Yoda. And I think that process has been, I can't imagine how hard it is to, to walk the tightrope, but my hat is off to them. They've done something. They've honored the original intent. They've created something new, but they've also filled the, the corporate need, which is like, hey, deliver Star Wars flavored goods that, that the masses will consume. And that's tough as the, as the sequel trilogy proved. That is really hard to do. Um, The other thing I would just add, though, is that, you know, this idea of creating that you hinted at with the flaw of the Star Wars prequels, which is that they stopped creating mysterious backstory. I think that's such a good lesson for anyone writing anything. The more you leave unanswered about the greater world, the more interesting things become. And it doesn't mean you can't answer things or explain them, but it's like the idea of exposition. Like a character who announces how they who they are is never as interesting as a character who you who refuses to announce that, or who misdirects, or who later reveals things. People don't say what they are, and things don't say what they are. Or if they do, they become instantly less interesting. Uh, it's just the way the world is. We're always attracted to some mystery. So when Obi-Wan Kenobi is an old man. And he's talking to Luke about these wars he served in with very little detail. 
it's like, oh, wow, what is that? Just like in Game of Thrones, the first seasons hinted at this idea of this big stuff going on in this big, confusing world. And it hooked. I mean, so many people who don't care about dragons and dungeons and swords (laughs) and fantasy fell in love with that show simply because it created compelling mystery about its universe. And once it started like closing that, once it started tightening that bow, people were like, oh, really? And I think that that my metaphor for that, you, you, yours is great. I love like, don't tie it too tight. Mine is you're drawing a circle, but you really don't want to connect that circle. You kind of want to leave that circle just off at the end and, and people will connect it. In fact, they will be feverish to connect it because that's what they want. They want to put it together in their brain. You know, that whole thing has me thinking about the concept of fan service more than I've thought about it in quite a while. And the reason why we even have this expression fan service is because there are things about a story that, you know, an audience wants to have happen. And the danger is falling into the trap of giving it to them in the most obvious way possible. The trick is to find ways to give people what they are looking for from a story in ways that simultaneously surprise them. And that's Mm. where a lot of things fail because they do the thing that we want to have happen in a way that feels predictable. And we are frustrated with the predictability because, you know, it doesn't feel real in life. We seldom see what's coming. And that's what's, you know, the original trilogy does such a good job. I mean, even the third film, of course, the second, the super death star is going to, and going to explode, but it is still (laughs) satisfying the way in which it is. executed that it is destroyed and there is an element of watching characters surprise you i mean one of the things that's really interesting about storytelling is how much people are like oh well i don't understand why you know a a frequent script note is like i don't understand why this person did this thing and it's like yeah as if you're supposed to go back and give some sort of freudian scene about how in their childhood their father taught them in the garage (laughs) about you know and it's like well no sometimes people like sometimes people have surprise in them. And sometimes it's exciting to see a character do something you don't quite understand. And then you're wondering why they did it and you're waiting to figure it out. And that you know can what be I also wish? intriguing. You're, you're, you're talking about something that is so core to good writing and storytelling. And I'm such a believer in, and it's reminding me of two things. One is that I was thinking the other day about the movie, the Deadwood movie, and talk about fan service. Like fans loved the show Deadwood. I loved Deadwood. Great show. Great. I mean, we'll also talk about uh, showrunners who were perhaps a little abusive. But anyway, <laughs> like Deadwood's great. And the finale left us hanging, to say the least. And there's always rumors of the movie. They brought the movie back. And the movie was really just like a reunion. It was like a Christmas special. It felt like something from a different universe. And it was fan service. And it was satisfying, but not really, because like you said, you want it, but you don't want it handed to you on a silver platter. You know what I mean? You want to have to work for it. You want to be teased. You want to be like, and it's so weird to talk about it like that, but it's so like, there was something like at the end of the Deadwood movie, they're like, yeah, and we'll, we'll get the bad guy for you and we'll give you the wedding you want and we'll give you the this. And it was just like, okay, like, I don't. I don't want to just gorge myself on fan. Like, like I want to, I want to work for it. And Mandalorian finale made you work for it. They made you sweat. 
and they gave it to you in a way that was satisfying. And that is a true skill of a creative, whether it's a fan property, which more and more of us and you will be having to work on, or whether it's something totally new. But whatever it is, the ability to delay gratification and deliver it in the right way, it's like a chef serving a meal. It's like, don't just lay out every single item in the kitchen. Like, you know, what's the appetizer? How does that get you started? What's the finale? Like, it, there's there's a way. And man, they really served it up nice. There are some great storytelling lessons in that. And particularly in this like discussion about why it works. Because, yeah, I, so easy to say. So hard to do. I wish I could do these things, honestly. Yeah. It also goes back to the fact that all of these things we're talking about are essential aspects of being human. Human beings value things more if we worked harder for them. It is just a thing about being a person. We are not very good at valuing the things that come easy to us. It is a human condition thing. So like everything about storytelling goes back to like interacting with the human beings in your audience. Like, think about it like you're if you're creating a video game for the gamers of the world. Like, if a video game is super easy, it's fun for, like, five minutes. And if it yeah. doesn't escalate or challenge you, then you really are going to be bored. Because who cares? You're just winning the same way over and over again. You don't have to adjust and adapt, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, it, it can only sustain you for so long. So you have to create obstacles for your characters. That's why. Like, that's that's the reason. And the better, the bigger the villain. That's why villains are so critical. Like, if you write an, if your villain is is stronger than your hero, then your story is automatically more interesting, you know, than these kind of non-villains that just don't seem to have a chance or don't have person personality. Yeah. No, my number one screenwriting note when I'm reading friend scripts is usually, I don't understand why your bad guy's acting like that. Because when you do understand why a bad guy's acting like that, it's so much more satisfying when there is a coherent sense of um, menace. I like guy. that. I like that note. You know, I noticed this trend I had when I looked at IMDb listings for movies, which I do used to do all the time, still do a lot. But I would look at the cast lists and the character lists and I would be like, okay, who are the heroes? Who are the villains? Because movies have this tendency now, certainly in the IP, the comic book world, where there's like a hundred heroes and maybe like one villain. <laughs> and I would always look at it and think like, how's that an even match? Like, shouldn't it be the opposite? Isn't it more interesting if they're outnumbered? Like, how much gravitas did they cast in the villains? How much, like, did they put into that? Because that tells me a lot about the story and the script and whether or not the stakes will work. Absolutely. All right. So this week in tech news, uh, tech news is always slowest right around the holidays, but we did have a couple interesting releases in tech. And one of the things that came along in tech that I thought was cool. So Red, one of the biggest manufacturers of cameras and maker of a flop of a smartphone a couple of years ago um, is <laughs> refocusing their attention back on cameras in a really beautiful way. And they have a camera called the Red Komodo that is very popular. I have some buddies who bought them who are blown away and really love the imagery out of them and like things are really cooking up. It uses the new RF mount from Canon and that is its native mount. But if you attached a red RF, like a Canon RF mount lens to the Red Komodo, it would work. You would get images on the sensor, but you couldn't control the autofocus. And that just changed. This week, they have rolled out the firmware with beta autofocus for the Red Komodo. Why is this big news? Why are we talking about this? Because we're talking about this because five years ago, nobody gave a shit about autofocus. Like in motion pictures, you just never used it. It was irrelevant. Right. The first thing you taught people was to turn it off. But autofocus is getting very, very good. 
And, but what's weird is that usually autofocus is best for an integrated system, like a Canon camera with Canon lenses, a Sony, Sony camera with Sony lenses. Like it's the full integration that makes it so impressive. The Red Komodo, made by Red, not by Canon, they've worked closely with Canon to integrate with the RF mount, but the RF mount lenses in this case are specifically made by Canon. And early reports are the autofocus is usable. Now, you're not going to use autofocus in all sorts of situations. If you're doing like a night scene in a car and you want to rack focus from like one actor to another and back, that you're going to still have to focus by hand. Autofocus is not going to nail that. But like if you're out on the beach shooting an action sports commercial and like people are running and people are swimming and you want to make sure it's staying sharp, autofocus is sort of an amazing tool for doing that. And seeing that show up in a cinema camera, and that's what Red makes. Red does a very good job of focusing their cameras on cinema features. They call them digital stills and motion cameras. And you see a lot of like still shot pulled from them, but unlike a lot of cameras that are like stills foot first with motion features added, these are definitely cinema first with stills features added cameras. And to see autofocus come there and become a thing that we are now going to take seriously and use um, especially at the $6,000 a camera price point is super duper cool and is a very exciting development from red. So that's our tech news this week. It feels like the autofocus thing is just kind of growing in general within the industry with cameras, like the reliability of it, the people wanting to actually utilize it. Whereas, yeah, it used to be something you didn't. How long has that been going on? Like when uh, did that start? It's hard to say when it would start. I can't tell you off the top of my head. Here's the thing. I ignored it for so long that I know it started before I thought about it. Like I think of yeah. it with the Canon C200 and the Sony uh, FX9. But people would tell me that I'm two or three years late on that because I would see it in press releases before that and I just ignored it. Um and then gradually enough, people were telling me, they were like, no, I did the shoot on the C200 and, and I used the autofocus and it was great. And so like, <laughs> it, like it's something that like I slept on and I think a lot of other filmmakers slept on. But where it really came into its own was a year ago with the Sony FX9. Uh, many people I know who've gone out and done FX9 shoots come back and they're like, oh my God, you can just use autofocus now. Like... For if you're shooting like a BTS video or a sports thing or an action thing or anything like that, like, you know, it's still not going to be amazing at those like perfect rack focus when you rack from like one character to another on a dramatic line. Like it's still not going to do that effectively, but sure. like how often are you really doing that? Like two or three times in an entire movie, the rest of the time you just want the lead actor to stay in focus as they like walk around talking. So it's a that, big development. Yeah, it really is. I don't think we're going to see like major changes in film crews for another five or 10 years, but I do think that like it is interesting to watch this change. This also means that Aeroflex are the last people that, you know, if you get an Alexa, Alexa still doesn't have autofocus, which is fine because, you know, you're shooting Alexa, you probably have a first AC. But I think it means in the next couple of years. I mean, Ari is always talking about how they have a 4K Super 35 camera coming out. It was maybe supposed to be in 2020, but now I think it's going to be 21 because it's the last week of the year and there was COVID. So next year they'll have a new camera and that maybe will have autofocus. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have said that before a, a year ago, but now that autofocus is getting so good with the FX9 and the Komodo, I think I think Ari might might actually bring it in. So I also have a tech ES no film school. 
So we have an Aspen Film School. Jason Pierce asks, I saw this Under Armour spot, beautifully shot, great storyline, but really what caught my attention was these night scenes in a bar that looked great despite being dark. The actors were well exposed and there was no grain or noise, kind of like how David Fincher does it. How do I do that? And thankfully, Jason, you included a whole bunch of like you you included a link to the spot in question with like a whole bunch of time codes of which ones you wanted to talk about. Hooray for you. Like sometimes people will be like, <laughs> oh, I saw this one thing. And like, how did they do that? But they won't include a link to the thing or yeah. So it's hard. So what you are noticing is that they shot a bar scene, but they properly lit it. What happens so often in bar scenes is, you know, you're like, you see it a lot in like indie features or whatever, where they didn't have enough money to actually light the bar. So everything in the bar is like two or three stops too dark. And at three stops too dark, you start to see a lot of noise and a lot of grain. And then in post-production, they try and like lift people's faces up and it's really grainy and it's terrible. This is a commercial that's properly lit. Now, even though it's properly lit, their faces still look dark and their faces look dark because they're probably, I don't know what camera they shot them, but they're probably one or two under key. Here's the thing. If you properly light your and expose your scene, you can have an actor one under key and they will still look quite nice. So, you know, if your aperture's a one four, but there's only enough face light on their face that your light meter is reading an F1, then their face is one under one being a stop under an F uh, 1.4. And that's going to look dark. That's just going to look dark, but it's not going to look dark and noisy. It's just going to look a little dimmer than the scene. So you can get away with one, sometimes two stops under. The other thing every single one of their bar scenes has is a hot, bright light somewhere. Usually in the background of a scene, there's a light over a bar mirror or there's a light on a wall. And that's the other trick to making dark scenes work. A lot of people think, I want to make a dark scene. I'm going to make it all dark. But actually, the trick to making a dark scene dark is to have part of the scene be bright so that the rest of the scene feels darker in comparison. It's a screenwriting trick. It is a life. It's a cooking trick, right? Like you don't do salt, 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 salt. You do like salt and sweet. You do like, you know, you vary your courses. The same thing is true here. It is uh, a cinematography trick as well. If you want a scene to feel pleasantly dark, Find somewhere in the shot where you're like, oh, I'll have a highlight over here. And because I've got that highlight over here, everything else will look darker in comparison. So, you know, every one of those shots you point out, there's something brighter than key in frame. I think you, when you say it, it's, it, it's true in writing, it's such a good point. It's a principle of contrast, not contrast like a contrasty image, but contrast like how can you see for scale if something is large, if everything in the frame is large? And if, you know, if you, you, if you're talking about the color palette in your story, you choose every color, or if you're capable of choosing every color, like maybe you want one house to stand out. So maybe it's not the same color as every other house on the street, or maybe you want one person to dress differently because you want them to stand out. The only way to get that to work is if there's contrast. So like, how would you notice that? you know, there's the scene is dark is like you have contrast within the the scene where you can see something is extremely well lit. And then suddenly by contrast, everything else looks dark. I think it sounds super obvious, but it's so easy for people to ignore it across the board because we have this disease of more where we always think more is better, more of anything, whether it's, you know, more action, like a bigger action sequence, and then an even bigger action sequence, like as opposed to 
contrasting sequence, contrasting types of action or action and then no action. Um, that's just how it works. Otherwise, it just becomes white noise. I mean, we get exhausted. We get overwhelmed. We need variety to make things work. And uh, that is the trick to a good dark scene in a bar. All right. Uh, I'm Charles Hain. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Charles Hain, although my Twitter is all politics these days. And uh, you can check out my work at charleshain.com. And I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. You can find out about everything we spoke about today and more at nofilmschool.com. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Send us questions at ask at nofilmschool.com, and we'll try to answer them on the pod. Have a great holiday and new year. Looking forward to, the, to 2021 and hopefully some changes in the world. Yeah, I'm going to hang on to my optimism. There's a lot of posts about like, <laughs> why do we think 21 will be better? And I'm like, you know, let us hope. Just let us, let yeah, us think I it mean, will be better. The day after 2020 will be no different fundamentally than the day prior. <laughs> like the first day of 2021 will just be another day in a string of days. But let's hope that 2021 brings changes that we want to see. There's a lot we could use right now. Absolutely. Happy holidays and see you all in the new year. 